Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. Uh, this is a part one of a two-part episode that we will be doing uh, that will release in consecutive weeks, where Ken and I will be talking about uh, the NAR, which maybe you've heard about, the New Apostolic Reformation. And then in the following podcast, we're going to be comparing it to what we've been talking about for years on this uh, on this journey here on this podcast as the new Reformation, uh, and just sort of talking about a little bit of the differences of what we mean and versus what maybe uh, other people are are talking about elsewhere. So, Ken, um, you're joining us from a it looks like a wonderful uh, place. Uh, <laughs> I feel like you need to have a nice cup of coffee and maybe a robe, but. Uh, Looks great. You're, you're. I think you're somewhere in the United States. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm at a friend's house in Texas, and uh, I'm in the uh, Lord of the Manor's home office. Um, you can see the windows behind me. You can see the moose antlers over there above the fire. Um, this house is built like uh, a Norman home that you might find in the north of France. Um, it's totally out of place in this particular locale but that's a beautiful home and uh so i'm where i'm on his computer i did bring mine with me but um but he said go ahead and use my home computer so i'm zooming off of my account from his computer um at an undisclosed location in the united states perfect perfect uh so we were just talking before we we started and um really feel like because one of the things that prompted this is we've gotten a lot of questions about um NAR versus what uh, what Orbis is doing and, and all of that sort of stuff. And so when we put the poll out on the God is on a Theory Facebook group, um, there was a lot of questions about NAR. And so uh, we, we wanted to take some time and just sort of deep dive into this. So I think first, Ken, it's important to define the term. So what, um, what exactly are we talking about? What are people talking about when they're talking about uh, NAR, New Apostolic Reformation? Yeah, the, the New Apostolic Reformation is, um, I would say, somewhat amorphous. It's a little bit like trying to catch uh, a jellyfish. <laughs> I mean, there is a jellyfish there, I suppose, uh, but it's kind of squishy. Or if you've ever tried to corner an octopus, same sort of idea. Um, and by the way, there's no negative anything in that. I'm just trying to help people think about something that's not necessarily clearly defined in a box. All I mean by that. Um, so. This term NAR, it's sometimes also called NAR, uh, or as you said, the New Apostolic Reformation. And um, I suppose the origins of the NAR really, um, they go back to the early 21st century. Uh, Peter Wagner was alive. He was a prominent. Uh, Peter Wagner's history alone is interesting. He was a missionary for, for many years in Bolivia. Um, and so he spoke fluent Spanish. He returned from the mission field and became a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is where I met him. And I took uh, three classes with him. He was the professor of record for John Wimber's now famous and defunct uh, MC 510 and MC 511 classes on signs, wonders, and church growth. Um, and I say professor of record because you had to have official faculty member to sponsor a class, but John Wimber was the, they called him an adjunct professor. 
John did the majority of the teaching and lecturing. Peter did a little bit. Um, then John would lead the ministry times or clinics as they called them in class. And, uh, and then later the theological faculty at Fuller, they weren't that happy with what John was doing and they essentially closed ranks and succeeded in asserting enough force, political force, uh, that John was removed from Fuller's campus and from teaching on campus. And so in the aftermath of that, Peter Wagner began teaching MC 510 and 11 without John's assistance. And Peter was a science and wonders guy himself. Uh, in particular, I mean, he, the Lord used him in many different ways uh, with healings and miracles and so forth. But, um, but in particular, Peter was known for growing legs. And so at one time he had written a book called Your Church Can Grow. And those of us who were around in those days, and it became a, a joke that his second book was going to be called Your Leg Could Grow. So um, anyway, Peter was a, a towering intellect, really. He's a very friendly, affable, approachable guy. He spawned a number of ministries, one of which was John Wimber's uh, Vineyard Movement. Um, while John was working for Peter at the Fuller Evangelistic Association, after about four years of that, Peter said, John, I think it's time for you to go home, plant a church and put into practice the things that you're telling others to do and basically create a working model of this. And so John did that. And, and I, I don't think it was just Peter sent him to do it. it. I think, John, it was in his heart. He'd been considering that, too. And he viewed this as confirmation from the Lord. Um, so anyway, John ended up starting the Vineyard Church. Uh, or what became a vineyard church out of that. There initially, it was a Calvary chapel. And then um, when Ken Gullickson, the founder of the vineyard movement, handed the movement over to John, um, John's church became the vineyard or Belinda. And later when it moved locations, uh, now the vineyard Anaheim, which is what it remained until that church withdrew from the vineyard movement um, in recent history. So um, Peter Wagner, um, ultimately ended up leaving Fuller Seminary. And he was, uh, he, he wrote, I don't know how many books, actually. I, I was at a dinner not long ago, and people were talking about all the books he had written. And some of them have been lost track of, or they're out of print, and no one really knows where to get copies of them anymore. But I think he may have written as many as 65 books. Um, and if my number's not exact, it's certainly in the correct range. So he was a he was a very prolific author. Um, he was he was astonishingly brilliant. He understood theology quite well. Also understood sociology. He understood people movements. Um, he was he was one of these people, kind of a true Renaissance man. And and I want to be clear, and I want to do justice to Peter Wagner. He was ardently devoted to the Lord, to the cause of Christ in the world which included evangelism and church planting. And nobody should ever, ever attempt to uh, subvert Peter Wagner uh, by claiming that he was in some way uh, not a legit uh, man who was pursuing all the things of God as best he understood them. But he was a man of new wineskins. He was always looking for what's the next expression that we need to create in order to house the new wine that the Lord is pouring forth, because we know from scripture 
that if you put new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins will rupture. And so I think some of Peter's own journey was exactly that. He was living the experience of being put out of old wineskins that were rupturing in response to the very things that he was about. So a couple of the key things that Peter Wagner uh, espoused, and I, I've already suggested them, is signs and wonders. He was a, a very much an advocate of a modern signs and wonders type movement. And he influenced John Wimber's thinking in this regard. Although to be clear, I think John was already moving in that direction on some level. Um, Peter had something to do with developing that. And there would have been a period of time where John Wimber would have said, Peter Wagner is my boss. I mean, that was literally true because John worked for him at the Fuller Evangelistic Association, FEA. Um, so it was literally true. But I think John would have said that Peter was his spiritual overseer, say it that way. I don't know that John Wimber would have ever said Peter was his apostle uh, because John didn't use language like that. But, but functionally, I think there was something of that maybe going on. The other thing that uh, Peter Wagner very much believed in was the idea of ongoing uh, prophetic revelation. Now, to be clear, I never, ever heard Peter talk about uh, writing new scripture or reopening the canon or anything like that. But he certainly believed in an ongoing prophetic ministry. And if we're honest and fair about it, neither of these, neither the signs and wonders nor the prophetic side of it, neither of these it's really out of step with what we would consider to be historic Pentecostalism. Those were very much part of the Pentecostal movement. So with this, Peter becomes kind of the archetype of a neo-Pentecostal. And probably the main thing that distinguishes neo-Pentecostals from Pentecostals is that neo-Pentecostals, on average, tended to be better educated. Peter had a PhD. As I say, he wrote many books. He taught seminary. Um, when he left Fuller, he went on to uh, found an organization that just at the moment, I can't think of the name of it, but anyway, and it generated many other very powerful ministries. Um, and so he had an ability to raise up people, or raise people up, I guess is the better English, um, who were flowing in the miraculous or revelation and who were very much making an impact on culture and society, all of it in a positive way, oriented towards Christ. And, and he had that grace on his life. He absolutely did. So um, that's a little background on Peter Wagner. But one of the things that grew out of the teaching that he brought um, was, I would say, an increasing emphasis on what is today called fivefold ministry. Now, to be clear, Back in the 1960s and 70s, people were already looking at Ephesians 4.11, which talks about the offices of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Um, today, some writers call this apest, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Um, but anyway, whether you call it fivefold or you call it apest, uh, Peter Peter began looking at that more carefully. And I would say his influence had something to do with, but it may not have been the only causal effect of the emergence of, of what became known in the 1990s uh, as the Office of Prophet. And um, we've talked about this somewhat on this podcast in the, before, so I, I don't want to revisit old ground too much. But 
um, the idea that there might be modern prophets uh, raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of hackles, particularly among historic denominations um, with names like Baptist or Presbyterian, Methodist or Lutheran or Episcopalian. And largely this was because the prophets of the Old Testament, historically, when we talk about the church being built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, uh, which Paul mentions, Paul the Apostle, when, when, when we talk about that, historically, the way the church has read that passage is to mean the, the prophets of old. And yet here we are now talking about modern prophets. And so a lot of people were very uncomfortable with this because they thought it undercut or undermined the authority, the, I don't know what you want to call it, the austerity, the uh, austere in the sense of dignified, certain carriage. All of that would be undercut. But it also suggested to some, not to all, and certainly not to Peter, to be clear, nor to John Wimber or anybody else like that, but it suggested to some the idea that we could reopen the canon, add new books to it, uh, maybe take some out. And, uh, and and it becomes kind of the leading edge of something that's still going on right now where people are talking about, in particular, adding the book of First Enoch to the Christian scriptures, even though that book has never been part of the Christian scriptures. So, except in one location, there is one place where the church acknowledged First Enoch, and that was the... Uh, uh, the Ethiopian church in Africa, uh, but but no other branch of the Christian church has ever gone there. So uh, people started talking about, you know, adding new revelation and whether the revelation of modern prophets could supersede what was written in scripture. And so these were things that like no one had ever really even thought about as a possibility because they were deemed sacrosanct. And that is a religious term. We don't tend to use it as much as we used to, but uh, um, sanct from the word for holy and sacro for partition. So this is holy and set apart. We don't, we just don't go there. We just don't touch this. We, we just don't even think about it. But by talking about a modern prophetic office, um, you know, people's minds go in various directions. And so people began contemplating what if we can reopen the canon. And unfortunately, um, I'd say some of the reputational taint that, that went with that line of thinking persists to this day. The other thing that comes out of all this is the idea of a new apostolic office. And this is really where the roots of the NAR come from. Um, so if we have new apostles or new prophets, we could also maybe have new apostles. And I can clearly remember, I don't remember the exact year that I heard this, but I can clearly remember uh, Paul Kane's emergence in 1988. And to me, that's a bright line in the sand that year, 1988. Um, that uh, Paul Kane was coming out of obscurity. Um, he had been essentially hidden away for 25 years. At the end of the latter rain movement, he disappeared. And by his own testimony, Paul Kane's own testimony, um, he, had, he had gone into seclusion because he was so heartbroken over what he saw as the carnality and of what ultimately transpired in the latter rain movement. Um, so he spent 25 years in Phoenix, basically in seclusion, praying and seeking the Lord. I think he did some limited amount of public ministry, but he was not a well-known name. He just kind of disappeared from the radar. So in 1988, Paul Kane shows up in Kansas City at what was then called Kansas City Fellowship. 
which would go on to become a vineyard church um, known as Metro Christian Fellowship and later uh, left the vineyard and ultimately changed its name and some of the way it functioned to become a kind of an ongoing missionary sending base known as IHOP, International House of Prayer. And Mike Bickle was always the leader of this, whatever by na whatever name it was known. Um, it was known that Mike was the leader of it. So IHOP, um, but at that time, Kansas City Fellowship, um, that church is where Paul Kane resurfaced. And it was because Kansas City had become a hotbed of prophetic activity. Bob Jones was there. John Paul Jackson was there. James Gall was there. And there was, there was a bunch of other ones as well. They're not really remembered very much these days. Uh, but James Ryle was around. Um, there was a man named Larry Davis. And, and I'm just throwing a few of these names out just to let people know if, if you know, if there was a Naoth in Ramah where Samuel was raising a school of the prophets, this would have been the nearest thing to it in modern times. And so, um, and note that I say this would have been the nearest thing. I'm not saying it was a new Naoth. So please, no one misquote me if you're listening and you decide to do a write-up on what I'm, uh, what I'm saying. Um, so Paul Kane shows up in Kansas City, and the prophetic movement really takes off in the 1990s. Um, and, and for approximately a decade, uh, many of these men that I've named were traveling with John Wimber, who had a global platform and stage, global reputation. And the prophetic movement becomes a a real phenomenon. And, and there were plenty of books written about this. Uh, you could go find books with titles like Modern Prophecy. Um, there was a guy out of Toronto named Guy Chevreau. G-Y is the way you spell the first name, but it's pronounced Guy. Um, he wrote a book on it, and I can't remember the title of it. Uh, Stacy Campbell wrote a book called Ecstatic Prophecy. So people were really thinking actively about all of this. And by the way, so also... Uh, people like David Watson were writing books about uh, modern prophecy. There was a book that came out called Some Said It Thunder. So if anyone who wants to go research this, there's a, there's a wide body of literature that was supporting this emergence of the new prophetic. Um, for the most part, no one was advocating for new scripture writing or uh, even the idea that modern prophets had the same authority, say Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. Or for that matter, you know, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, or Malachi. There was a very clear understanding that, that this was canon, uh, but this modern prophecy was not. But of course, people always want to push the envelope and go further with it. So after about a decade of all this prophetic ferment, uh, and again, I can clearly remember it was right around the year 2000. It could have been 1999, could have been 2001 or two. But I can remember hearing Mike Bickle make the statement, um, the prophetic ministries of the 1990s have laid the altars for the apostolic ministries of the 2000s. And I, I mean, I like Mike. He's a friend of mine. I'm aware of the controversy for those who may not know that I know. I'm aware of the controversy in Kansas City around Mike. The jury's out on that, so we're just not going to even go there or comment on it right now. Um, but... Um, but I remember when Mike said that going, whoa, now there is a loaded statement. The prophetic ministries of the 1990s have laid the altars. What, why are we laying altars? What does this even mean? I think I know what it means, but 
we really need to define our language. But with it, what happens around the turn of the millennium is people began talking in a serious, credible way. Well, some would say it was never credible. So I'll just say in a serious way, in an intentional way, about new apostolic ministries. And um, Peter Wagner uh, had a conference, uh, I think it was in the year 2001, uh, where he was actively discussing and exploring what might a new apostolic ministry look like. And of course, if people were upset about the idea of new prophets, um, they became apoplectic at the idea of new apostles. Because historically, through 20 centuries of church history, if you said apostle, you probably meant the original 12, or maybe throw Judas out since he didn't end well, and we put in Matthias, uh, so that becomes the new 12. And we do have Paul, so seems to be an unusual one with a sovereign vessel type anointing on him. Um, but people weren't even really seriously thinking about the possibility of, of other apostles during that same era. And even those who knew church history well enough to refer back to the writings of like Papias or Eusebius, his uh, church history, where, the, where it was suggested that maybe the 70 slash 72, depends on which textual tradition you're following, of Luke 10, that all of those 70 or 72 were also apostles, but they weren't the apostles, 12, but they were still apostles. Um, Papias and Eusebius had suggested this, sniffed around at it a little bit, but over the centuries that had largely gone away. No one was really thinking about it. So the idea of new apostles, this was this was beyond revolutionary and some really took to it and loved it because they saw in Ephesians 4 11, the idea of an ongoing five fold ministry, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And so by golly, if we've got modern prophets, we must have modern apostles. On the other hand, those from a more conservative or traditional bent. Um, and by the way, some of these traditionalists were liberal theologians. They weren't, they weren't conservatives. But they followed the, you know, the church tradition because that was sacred to them. The idea that you might have new apostles, this was, I mean, th this really caused waves. I mean, like I said, if the prophetic idea upset people, the apostle idea really took it to a new level. But Peter was in the center of that conversation, and he began writing some books on this and trying to define what do we mean by modern apostles. Um, and there were some clear parameters. Uh, they don't write scripture. Um, not always clear whether these modern apostles have seen the risen Christ as Paul asserts of himself in uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Um, but, but by bits and bobs, uh, this idea of modern uh, apostles emerges. So one of the uh, tenets of the NAR or the New Apostolic Reformation is that a belief in the ongoing prophetic and apostolic office, albeit with some um, specific boundaries around it, such that we are not actually seeking to replace or even to replicate um, the ministry of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles. So I've just said a lot. I'll pause and ask a question or two about it. Because yeah, I, I think what you're saying is that, um, you know, e even what you just said, one of the tenets uh, of NARs is, you know, that I, I do think it's the time to to say that there really is not an official 
uh, NAR, you know, denomination or anything like that. Uh, it's typically used as a label. Um, I don't know. I've never really heard anyone say it without negative connotations, but maybe there are people that use it as a label without negative connotations, but it, it genuinely comes with that. Um, and so just even in saying like, these are the tenets, th this is what is, is wildly, widely accepted as this is what they believe. Uh, and, and so I think what you've been doing is laying the foundation of where did this come from? Because, uh, you know, Peter Wagner and, and those guys were really just rediscovering this idea of, Hey, we have pastors, we have evangelists, we, ha you know, so do we not have these other things that are listed? And so they were sort of just coming in almost like a revival of, of these um, ideas that they find in scripture that seem to be, um, you know, maybe forgotten. And so there was a lot of teaching that came in, you know, there was a lot of like, no, 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 this is not what we mean. This is, you know, addressing the controversy. And then, you know, obviously that means that there's, uh, there's now apostles. And so what does that mean? And, you know, fighting off the accusations of, of you're saying that you're, you're on the on par with Paul and, and all of these sort of things. And, and Peter never thought that uh, folks never thought that now, there are people out there that believe that, you know what I mean? There, yes. there are, there certainly are people that have taken these ideas, you know, to an extreme level. And, um, and so that's, that's a lot of times what is happening uh, with the accusations is that people just kind of run with things and, and all of that. And so uh, just even as we were framing this discussion, I, we're neither, you know, we're, we're not trying to defend uh, nor anything like that. We're we're saying here's what this is that people say, and it's typically what it is. But it's 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 hard to define because it's not even a, a formal thing. Um, In and, fact, um, NAR or NAR. Now, Peter did use that language. He did mm -hmm. say we're looking for a new apostolic reformation. And there's some other points that I want to cover that are entailed with it. But um, so Peter used that language. But Peter Wagner, but having said that, um, there have been some books written about the so-called New Apostolic Reformation. And to my knowledge, and maybe I'm just not informed, but I, I know a lot of people who often get tagged as NAR or NAR. To my knowledge, none of them uses the language of a new apostolic reformation. So it's now become a pejorative term directed at the very people who are part of a movement of, I would call them revivalists. And what they're thinking about is a new wineskin type of structure that doesn't quite look like the old way of doing church, which can be hierarchical, uh, leadership centric rather than distributed leadership among the laity. Um, and so we have to be careful here because something that was once used more like an academic descriptor, a, a way of categorizing something, has now become um, fighting words, as we might say. Right, right. And so, you know, as we've been over the years, um, I guess it was two seasons ago, we really spent most of the, the time. Uh, talking about this new reformation that um, that you were sensing 
was was on the horizon and i think now that we can see it's like it's it's broke through it's coming it's it's here and then uh and there's more to come and so i do think um as we've gotten questions you know just saying well this is what we're talking about this is what they're talking about and just to let the people know that's what we're trying to do again here um as as ken's kind of laying the foundation and the history uh, to this so why don't we go on and and again this is what a lot of people uh say are the tenets of uh of this nar thing yeah um so moving beyond peter wagner he died a few years ago i'm the exact year of his death but i want to say maybe it was five years ago now six years ago um someone could look it up and find it very quickly he's a well enough known figure very searchable on the internet but anyway peter died a few years ago and a lot of people who are influenced by him are still around and quite active um Cheon considers himself a spiritual son of peter's and he got his doctorate under peter wagner from fuller seminary cindy jacobs would be another one um lou engel is another one uh lou is a very well-known i would say international prayer leader um if you get to know these people, they are they are very serious about their faith in Christ and advancing the gospel in every corner of the world. And um, I, I, I would say if you got to know them, you, you would be hard put not to love them because they are they are really genuine people. Now, each of them has his or her own personality. Um, they're not a bunch of clones and robots. But they were all of them in one way or another connected to Peter. And I guess you could tag me as a NAR guy if you really wanted to try and do it because I took three classes from Peter while he was at Fuller. But just remember, his Fuller years preceded the years where he was spinning off all these different ministries um, that many of them still go on to this day. And, I, and I've only named three names. There are, there are quite a few many more uh, that we could we could look at. We could think of Lance Wall now and all of the teaching he's doing around the seven mountains which has become actually one of the key points of those who think in this way um we could think of john kelly who leads the international coalition of apostolic leaders or ical um, he was a disciple follower a mentee of peter wagner's and again there are so many others i'm, I'm only throwing out a few names here but um but one of the things that emerges out of uh, out of this conference that Peter held in 2001, and it, it's not an immediate emergence, it's more of a development of thought over some period of time. Uh, what emerges is the idea that for churches to truly be authentic New Testament churches, they must be in what comes to be known as apostolic alignment. And for a lot of people, this sends shivers down their spine because it somehow reminds them of the shepherding which came and went in the uh, late 60s and particularly in the 70s and the shepherding movement was I think I think it had a good idea at its genesis but I think it was a good idea poorly executed and it ultimately became somewhat cultic controlling because for example nobody could date anybody or even beyond that get married to anybody without the approval of their shepherd and um, and so ultimately, the shepherding movement came to a conclusion. And many of the people who had been part of the shepherding movement, which, by the way, was not connected to Peter Wagner, it's clear, um, 
many of those people uh, ultimately publicly said, you know, this went too far. We recant of the things that we were saying and doing. But but this idea of being in apostolic alignment and that no church is truly an authentic church if it doesn't have an apostle to whom it relates, um, this sounds and feels to a lot of people um, like the shepherding movement with maybe a refresh. And so a lot of people react against that idea. Um, another thing that uh, you will hear some people who are supposedly NAR leaders say, and by the way, none of these is universally taught. Although I would say within this amorphous blob that we're calling the NAR, um, it's widely, these things are widely believed, uh, but they aren't necessarily like, you've got to believe every single one of these things. So not everybody would hold to this idea of apostolic alignment, but it would be very common to find. Um, another one would be uh, that that uh, the church is going to govern and lead in the political sphere. And with that comes the idea that um, the church is an ecclesia. It sits in the city gates. And as an ancient ecclesia, ecclesia may have done, say, in ancient Greece somewhere, setting policy for the city, the church is to have a role like this in the marketplace. And for people who are aware of, say, what John Calvin did in the city of Geneva during the Reformation, um, that may or may not be comforting. Uh, because John Calvin certainly had something like that going on even in the 1600s, late 1500s, early 1600s. Um, and that persisted for quite a while. And not everybody is impressed with the uh, kind of control that Calvin and his cohorts uh, exercised in Geneva. And, and that model of city governance was exported to other places. So when people hear about an ecclesia that's going to be the ruling body of a city, they think, hey, hold on here. And this is what gives rise to comments like the NAR is the new Taliban. Because certainly the Taliban functions in that sort of a way in Afghanistan. Hey, everybody, I'm back. Uh, we were in midstream recording this podcast, and I guess we got a power surge or something, and all the circuits in the house flickered and went out, and the computer I was operating from is now dead. Um, so I, as you can tell, the, the, I'm in the same location, but the aspect of, this, of the picture is different, and that's because I've switched to my iPad um, from my host's uh, computer in his office. Uh, so it's still me here, but uh, anyway, this is what we've got. Uh, so anyway, we were just making the comment that um, that people began to characterize the NAR uh, group as the new Taliban. I don't I don't think they have anywhere near the malicious intent or the inclination toward violence that uh, we see in the Taliban. Um, they're certainly not Islamic, uh, but. As you know, people love to just put a label on something and think they've understood it. So um, the idea of leading in the marketplace uh, and in the political sphere of putting our elected leaders into, into place and essentially bringing Christianity in, not through the force of heart, uh, through the power of conversion and persuasion, but rather through the ability to assume the, the levers of government and to uh, wield political power, this starts to become a common theme. And there would be a number of people who use this language of ecclesia today, 
um, and who like the idea of us uh, putting into place leaders who are uh, politically um, in office and in power, uh, this becomes part of the landscape of this so-called uh, NAR. And again, it depends on where you come from. If you're more of a magisterial reformer persuasion, uh, maybe Episcopalian, Lutheran, possibly high Presbyterian, this might not bother you that much because there is plenty of history of this in uh, early Protestantism. On the other hand, uh, maybe you look at some of the things that went on from that period and it gives you the heebie-jeebies and you think, uh, we don't want to go back to that. And so uh, in any case, for those who are not uh, of a Christian persuasion, when they hear people using this kind of language, it very much frightens them because they view it as an attempt by Christians to stage a coup and to um, assert through, through domination um, their beliefs and to impose them on a society, whether people want it or not. And with this emerges the term dominionism. And there were some other people who, who fueled this. Now note that Peter did not espouse uh, dominionism, Peter Wagner, but, but there are others who did. And one of the first names I remember hearing in this regard, and this would have been way back in the 1980s or early 90s, I, I think actually as early as the 80s, there was a man named um, Rush Dooney. And he was espousing for this kind of dominionism and it created quite a stir, but this idea didn't go away even when Rush Dooney faded into the background. Um, his ideas continued and are today, I think, in, in some quarters of what is called the NAR, uh, very much uh, on exhibit and people are still wanting to do that. Are all so-called NAR people wanting that? I don't think so. But enough of them are um, that, that it has become part of what people view as the mix. And right behind that idea of dominionism comes the idea of a theocracy, that, that leaders, whether they're church leaders or political leaders, are God-appointed or God-anointed and appointed. And with that, there, there's a kind of validation that we see, for example, in the pages of Scripture. We know that when Solomon becomes the king, um, he is anointed by the high priest, and he's taken down to the Gihon Spring, and they... You know, they anoint him, and this is in order to prevent one of the other sons of David from taking over the government. Uh, and so, so now Solomon is the anointed one. And of course, David had famously been anointed by Samuel the prophet, no less, as, by the way, had Saul the king before David. And so the fact that we have a, a belief in modern prophets and apostles, uh, and these prophets are wandering around, well, Lord knows they may be actually anointing and appointing political leaders. And, and this really comes to a head with none other than Donald Trump, because Donald Trump was quite friendly with um, much of the Christian leadership, a conservative Christian leadership, charismatic Christian leadership of the United States. I don't know whether he's truly a believer himself, but, but he certainly was, he was a politician and he knew how to build consensus and coalition when it suited him. And so, um, you know, he worked with a lot of these people who today are associated with the NAR and they believed Donald Trump to be God's vessel raised up in the hour to lead the American government 
um, in that interval of time. Now, everybody should understand, I am not here saying I agree or disagree with that point of view. I'm doing what an academic does. I am trying to be dispassionate and give a fair, even treatment that um, if, if somebody who was tagged as NAR were to hear it, they'd say, yes, I agree with that. I'm not being misrepresented. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's why I'm deliberately avoiding um, language that could be inflammatory or pejorative or, for that matter, supportive. I, I'm not seeking to do that. I'm just trying to help you understand what this is. But anyway, this idea of theocracy uh, emerges, you know, leadership by God's rule through his anointed and appointed vessels. And Donald Trump becomes a, a poster child of that. But let's be clear, there are other political leaders during the same interval of time um, who are in like manner uh, viewed as God's vessels. They may not have the power or prominence of the president of the United States, uh, but that does not mean that they are not of that same general thought. Um, I guess the last thing I want to make mention of here, and, and there could be some others, I'm just, we, we can't cover everything. I'm just trying to give you a sense of what makes this thing called NAR unique is many parts of the uh, New Apostolic Reformation really like Brian Simmons' Passion Translation. And um, the Passion Translation is, in my opinion, it's more of a paraphrase than a translation. Um, and I'm not convinced that in all cases it's, it's accurate um, in some parts of the Bible that have been uh, rendered this way. It probably is accurate enough albeit with a, with a unique emphasis. The Passion Translation wants to show God's heart for his people, his incredible love and ardor um, for all of his people. And as a result, you'll find that uh, the Passion Translation has, well, a lot of passion. And therefore, there might be times where the language sounds a lot more animated, possibly even romantic, uh, than what a traditional Bible translation like the King James, the Revised Standard Version, New King James, English Standard Version, New American Standard Version, um, than what those might exhibit. I forgot the NIV also. I know for some people, they really like the NIV. Um, so, so they would look at this Passion Translation and they'd say, you know, you're over-translating it, Brian. But there are other parts where they look at it and they say, look, the way you're even rendering this, this isn't even what the passage says in the original Hebrew or Greek. And so you know, they get rather uh, upset about that because, you know, if you start changing the book uh, upon which everything is supposed to rest, the thing that is our sole rule of faith and practice, you've moved the goalposts potentially and you could end up, well, who knows where you could end up. But, and which so... Uh, oddly enough, yeah, oddly enough, that was exactly what the fear and accusation was uh, when they were talking about, you know, uh, uh, new apostles and new prophets. The fear was they're going to change and, and, <laughs> and rewrite the scripture, right? That's right. And, and here we are talking about the Passion Translation. So that's it. And, you know, the potential is there, but I, I want to be clear. And again, I want to be fair, fair minded and fair in my characterization of this because again i know brian simmons I, I i mean you will you will look a long way to find somebody who is more dedicated to the lord jesus than brian simmons um does that mean everything he does is right no does it make him perfect no 
doesn't make me perfect or you you perfect, Grant. It, it's just, you know, we're believers here and we we recognize our own shortfalls and, and sinfulness. Um, so I'm not I'm not making this an unqualified uh, I don't know plenary indulgence for uh, for Brian Simmons, but I do want to give the man credit where credit is due. He's attempted to take the scriptures and render them into modern language in a way that will capture the hearts and imaginations of people and cause them to fall in love with the word of God all over again in a way that maybe the word of God hasn't been able to do because it seems stiff, um, perhaps stuffy, archaic. Um, and so Brian's trying to get beyond that. But here's what's happened. For a lot of people who run in these um, so-called NAR circles. And note that I keep using words like so-called or those who describe it as, because again, there is no organization called the NAR. Um, and, and so this is something that opponents and critics have now put on it and um, not always fairly. But for those who are part of that crowd, uh, many of them do read the Passion Translation and they endorse it and support it. For example, Bill Johnson, um, wrote a multi-page introduction to the Passion Translation, uh, which I think more than anything extols the values of scripture reading and what he has found of value in that rendering of scripture that Brian has produced, Brian Simmons. But that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it, it's the same as saying that it's a fair and accurate translation at every point of grammar and, and uh, linguistics. So these folk that are part of this thing termed the NAR, many of them are readers of the Passion Translation. And those who are not part of this thing called NAR generally don't. They read more traditional mainstream translations uh, that come from publication houses like Crossway, Tyndale, and others. And so uh, there's a split there between which version of the Bible do you use? And if you go to a meeting or watch one online um, from, by a so-called NAR leader, yeah, a lot of times you will hear them using the Passion. But to be clear, they're not universally using the Passion. It's viewed as one of several that we might draw upon to get a better, richer, fuller understanding of the Word of God. But anyway, um, so there, there may be some other things, as I said, uh, that, that people would want to call out as... Uh, things that are problematic for them or unique distinctions of this thing called the NAR. Uh, but I think I've tried to capture some of the more important ones to help you understand what it is and maybe what it isn't. And um, I had it up on the screen before the other computer died. I don't have it up in front of me now. But Joseph Matera, uh, M-A-T-T-E-R-A, Joseph Matera and uh, P, um, Michael Brown, these two men, um, I think it was in 2022, not 23, uh, they realized that there was so much animus coming up about the, this thing called the NAR that they actually wanted to write a statement um, speaking about why the NAR wasn't quite on target. And I was going to read a portion of it, but again, the computer in front of me is dead and I'm using my iPad now. But I would encourage you to Google um, Joseph Matera, Michael Brown's statement on the NAR, and you'll find it very quickly, uh, and read through it and see what they're trying to demarcate using the things that I've already said as part of your framing understanding of that, 
And by the way, I'm a signatory to that uh, document. I helped craft it. I wasn't a primary author. Um, Michael Brown and Joseph Matera were the primary authors. But it went through a number of revisions, and I was uh, directly involved in those several revisions as we tried to uh, be generous and fair to some of the, I think, new wineskin ideas that have merit as we try to uh, create a Christianity that is functional and um, appealing and winsome in today's world, uh, but at the same time trying to corral in and bring a bit of correction to those things that are perhaps a little wide of the mark or maybe a little too excited, and we need to rein in that irrational exuberance. Um, go read that statement on the NAR. Again, you'll find it with the names Joseph Matera and Michael Brown attached to it. And, you know, Joseph Matera has a THD in theology. He has been in the past the leader of the U.S. Coalition of Apostolic Leaders, which is an affiliate of this international coalition of apostolic leaders that I mentioned several minutes ago. Um, and he's a very good thinker. He's written a number of books. Uh, I consider him a friend and I think you'll I think you'll understand that Joseph Matera has some chops and Michael Brown, uh, for most uh, charismatic readers and even many evangelical ones, should need no introduction. He's a, he's got a Ph.D. in Semitic languages from a reputable institution. Um, he is uh, he's also a friend of mine and um, he has written a number of books. He podcasts voluminously. Um, he is a voice in the wilderness. Um, and he, he holds strongly to the norms of biblical uh, orthodoxy and standards. And so if you understand with these two guys at the helm, they were trying to bring things back to what we might have more commonly thought of historic orthodoxy, albeit in a new wineskin. And so they wrote this uh, statement about the NAR in order to help put some guideposts up, because not everybody um, appreciates all the historical or linguistic or creedal nuances that go with um, something as large and sweeping as um, as this attempt to bring about a new expression of Christianity that, again, has been tagged the NAR. Now, I've just said a lot, Grant. I hope you were taking notes so you can ask me the things you want to ask, because, uh, we, <laughs> yeah, I, I just sort of kept going. But But please ask some questions to clarify for our readers. Well, I, I just think, again, uh, you know, what we're looking at here is we're looking at, I mean, uh, statistically, right, the, the fastest growing part of the church is charismatic Pentecostal. Um, a lot of that is uh, non-denominational driven. Uh, and so you have a lot of people being able to, to rise to uh, some level of prominence uh, amongst this group uh, that is decentralized. And it is, uh, there's really not you know, official organizations. And so you have a lot of people who say, Hey, we're, we're sort of doing the same thing. We need community. Uh, let's hang out and get together. And, uh, and, and then within that you have, you know, all kinds of people can do all kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, there are people that are running around, some of them doing good things, some of them doing, you know, not so great things. And it all kind of gets lumped in uh, to this NAR type of a, a bucket. And, um, and so, you know, as we're, as we're going along here, I just think, you know, one of the things that we've talked about um, and, and that we're, we're constantly talking about is, you know, the fidelity to the scriptures and, um, and, and just a good theology and, and, and a thoughtful 
theology um, as well. You know, we, that's that's one of the things that we really try to do here is to to really be good thinkers and to teach people how to how to think well and uh, and deeply uh, about uh, certain topics. And so I think Ken, you've done a great job of just sort of tracking the history of what this is um, and where it came from. And you have, I think you have been, um, you know, pretty fair uh, to, to all those involved. And, and I think it's, it's, again, important to say, I don't know of anyone that says I'm a part of NAR. I, we're, we're a NAR church. I mean, it, it does not exist. And, um, and so, you know, as we're sitting here uh, talking about this, you know, in the next episode, we're going to begin to explain what, what have we been talking about over the past couple of years? And, and when you're out talking about a new reformation that's required uh, of the church, you know, we're, we're sort of juxtaposing that against this idea of all of the tenets we just described, uh, using the Passion Translation, uh, you know, uh, Dominion Theology, uh, Theocracy, all, you know, those are all the, these things that people say and lump in together. Here's what we're talking about. And, um, and I, I just think, again, we want to give people uh, the idea of, of what's going on. Um, and so, Ken, I, I guess, you know, I've had to do this multiple times as a pastor. But let me ask you just so we can get on the record. Are you a part of NAR? No. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, as I said, I signed the statement that uh, Joseph Matera and Michael Brown uh, put together. I was part of the revision committee, not the original authorship. Um, and I, I was directly involved in five uh, significant you know, revisionary cycles. Um, and then I put my signature on it and Orbis is a signator to it. So I, I want to be clear that the things that people view as excesses, um, and, you know, I didn't say this when I was doing my long exposition, but this idea of uh, the political sphere and this governing leadership out of the ecclesia leading to the idea of a theocracy, all of this collectively gets lumped together as what is nowadays known as Christian nationalism. So these are Christians, they're nationalists for, in this case, the United States. But let's be clear, when we look at President Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, it's Brazilian, not American, but that's viewed as Christian nationalism. So the idea that, you know, these nations are uh, being crafted into Christian societies, that's actually not out of step with Reformation thinking, but it is out of step with modern thinking. And as a result, um, people who are not Christians or people who are leftists, people who may advocate for various forms of, say, Marxism or socialism, uh, they, they, again, they go crazy when they hear this kind of talk. And so with that, um, there's a very strong negative uh, narrative that is you know, thrown at people who are thinking in this direction. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so we'll, we'll begin to talk more about that in the next episode of, of we're defining what we're uh, we're stating here. But I, I think we've done a, a good job, Ken. I think you especially have done a good job of just sort of outlining what this is, because, again, we're, we're doing this podcast because I'll, so many of you have asked, can you can you talk about this? What is this? We're not even sure what's going on. And yep. so uh, so that's been the attempt uh, that we're trying. And and. Uh, you know, you've probably been accused. I've definitely been accused uh, of, of being a part of this uh, ambiguous boogeyman NAR. And, uh, and so we've, we've had to uh, refute that multiple times. And because what we do is we believe in a fivefold ministry. We believe, yeah. you know, you, you teach a course on, on, you know, the prophetic and, uh, you know, all of these sort of things. And so 
Um, so we do sometimes get lumped into to those, but I, I think if they get to know uh, as for any length of time, they understand we're not, we're not dealing in the excesses that people are uh, so worried about uh, in this, but uh, I think, I think we've done a, a good job here and I think it's a, a good, good spot to land. And, yep. uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on uh, with the next episode uh, that'll come out in the following week. Uh, to just sort of frame what we're talking about. And um, and just to, as a point of reference, we've had both of those, um, Tara and Dr. Brown, uh, on our podcast previously, and we have talked at some length about this. If you want to go search uh, for those, uh, you can find those there uh, on the podcast as well. So, uh, Ken, I, I think that's great. Any any closing thoughts? Um, keep going hard for Jesus and uh, be willing to think about new wineskins. We don't change the wine, maybe, although there is this new wine, right? The refresh, the new emphasis, the enthusiasm, the devotion to Jesus. Um, but, but the basic substance of wine is it's still wine, um, even if it's newly vinted. And, uh, and be thinking about wineskins that will make it appropriate as a proper contextual and cultural expression of the faith in our day that still remains true to the historic norms of Christianity. That's the tension that we're trying to work through right there, that, that remaining consistent with the historic norms, even if we don't have the exact same expression of it lived out. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a, that's yeah. a great way to close it. So, all right, well, Ken, we'll, we'll take a break here and uh, we'll close this episode. So thank you all for listening. Ken, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you right here next week with part two uh, of what we've been talking about now on God is Not a Theory with Ken Fitt. <music>